designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers, if you like. (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tails behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. A special thank you to BQE, the makers of BQE Core, for their support this episode. BQE Core is the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and people for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. Learn more at bqe.com. Well, I would tell a lot of the younger architects in the office to get out from behind the computer, get into the field, get on site, learn how buildings are put together, get out in your community, especially if you have particular interests, get out and see how the world works and make as many relationships as you can. Because I think if you just stay in your little architecture bubble, it's not a great thing. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here, so let's get into it. Welcome back. For my U.S. listeners, I hope everyone is taking care of themselves and protecting your mental health in wake of the most recent mass shootings that have occurred. I hope that one day in the future, mass shootings in the U.S. will be something for the history books and not a recurring trauma. This week's episode is a replay of an interview I did with Diane Cho at the University of Baltimore's Real Estate and Economic Development Program in April of 2022. Diane was selected as a Baltimore legend by the University of Baltimore's Merrick School of Business back in 2020, but the celebration had to be postponed a few years due to COVID. I was incredibly flattered when Diane asked me to interview her for this celebration. She is an architectural rock star to me and one of the reasons that I decided to join the Baltimore office of Quinn Evans. Prior to joining Quinn Evans, I was co-running a small architecture practice and tried to model it after Diane's firm, which was Chobin Holbeck at the time. In addition to just being awed by the work that the firm was doing, I also was inspired by the fact that it was a woman and minority-owned firm that was doing work in the space of historic preservation and sustainable design. So let me get into her bio so you can share my excitement. 
So Diane Cho is a founding principal of Chobin Holbach, originally Cho Wilkes-Bin, a woman and architecturally owned firm noted for the cultural, education, and community realm, where the focus has been on the creative reuse of aging historic building stock. Diane and Barbara Wilkes started their architecture firm in the late 1970s, having moved to Baltimore a few years after graduating from Cornell University's architecture school. Beginning with row house renovations, they gradually expanded their portfolio to include larger buildings and added partners David Ben and George Holbach to enhance the firm's reach. An early focus on housing led to the market rate warehouse renovations, such as Tindico Wharf and Canton Cove, and a number of affordable housing and historic schoolhouse renovations located in some of Baltimore's most challenging neighborhoods. Believing in the arts as a catalyst for community revitalization, Diane began to focus her projects primarily in the cultural realm, where she has worked closely with clients to assure that architectural concepts reflect each institution's mission. Her portfolio includes many award-winning projects, such as the Baltimore School for the Arts, the Jim Rouse Center at the American Visionary Art Museum, the Everyman Theater, and Center Stage. As an active leader and patron for many cultural organizations, she's helped to position and celebrate the arts as a vital ingredient to the life of strong and vibrant cities. Diane currently serves on the board of trustees of MICA and has recently served on the boards of the Baltimore Museum of Art and Everyman Theater. After 35 years of building the firm in Baltimore, she and her partner sold their architecture firm in 2017 to Quinn Evans, a national firm headquartered in Washington, D.C., with five other branches throughout the Mid-Atlantic and Midwest. Diane remains a principal at Quinn Evans and continues to work on projects within her area of expertise. So yeah, as you can hear from her bio, she's kind of a big deal. And so I know that her legacy in Baltimore is going to be felt for decades to come. And so in lieu of spotlighting just one building this week, I wanted to spotlight a few of the historic buildings that were revitalized thanks to the work of the Baltimore office of Quinn Evans, formerly Chobin Holbach. For those of you who know Baltimore, these buildings will be familiar. For those of you who aren't familiar with Baltimore, head over to the Tangible Remnants Instagram page at Tangible Remnants to see images of Tindico Wharf, Brewers Hill, Clipper Mill, and the American Brewery for Humanum. I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. And without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this conversation between me and the legendary Diane Cho. So thank you all for coming tonight. It's been just something that I've been very excited about to do. Since we have had a while to prep for this, I'm excited to do this. Diane is an amazing person, amazing architect. Jay ran off a number of projects that have had a huge impact in the city. And so I'm excited to be able to have this conversation with you. And so why nobody knows me, I can get here. I'm just in the program. You're in the program. Okay. Yeah. I will say I am a preservation architect. I've had the pleasure of working at Quinn Evans for almost three years and talking with Diane. Diane was a big reason of why I got to Quinn Evans. So why don't we go ahead and take it back a little bit. When did you know that you wanted to be an architect? Okay. So let me start with just like a one minute Wikipedia background thing. My grandparents emigrated from Korea to Hawaii in between 1906 and 1918. My parents were born in Hawaii, and I was born in Hawaii. So I am a third-generation Asian-American, which is a little bit unusual. And after uh, World War II and the Korean War, my father decided to become a lawyer, and he went to law school at the University of Boulder, Colorado. So he moved the family from Hawaii to Boulder. His first job was with the Atomic Energy Commission, 
So we, then we moved to Los Alamos, New Mexico. So I grew up as a child out west and, you know, big skies, lots of nature, wonderful. And then my father got transferred to Washington, D.C. So he moved the family to the East Coast, and it was my real introduction to big cities and took us to D.C. and New York City. And I fell in love with, you know, the museums, the department stores, the live theater. He knew I just really loved cities at that point. So when I was in high school, and after Martin Luther King was assassinated, watching television, all the urban riots, and I was, you know, pretty horrified. And my father walks by and he goes, Diane, you should think about becoming an architect because somebody needs to rebuild the cities. And um, he knew I liked to draw. He knew I, you know, sort of toyed with being an artist or whatever. And that's not something an Asian father really thinks is in the cards, a good idea. So he suggested architecture, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I think I got a couple of books out of the library and talked to a couple of people that he knew and applied to Cornell, got in, and started an architecture school. All right. And so Cornell, back then, I uh, was not very diverse, either racially or gender-wise. So what was it like, and what were some of the challenges that you uh, ran into being a woman at Cornell at that time? Okay, well, at 18, you're pretty naive, so I wasn't really even thinking about diversity, but looking back, there were 60 people in the class, four women, and two people of color. That would be me as one, and there was a, a black guy, Abe Lee, who dropped out after a couple of weeks, but I think he ended up coming back to school and starting in the class below us, so not a lot of diversity. And in five years at Cornell, both, it's because it was a five-year program, professional program, at Cornell. In all of that time, I never had a single woman professor. But I didn't even think it was strange that it just meant white men dominated all, all fields. It was just normal. And any trauma or that I had was just trying to get through the program. And I think the men had it too. It's just a very rigorous program. So, yeah, yep, very different from today. I've been back to Cornell recently and it's so diverse. It's unbelievable. I think majority women and racially completely diverse. Amazing things have happened. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you were trailblazing there. Sounds like that was a, a theme of your career, just trailblazing left and right. Um, so, <laughs> you don't know you're a pioneer, you're just bumbling along. <laughs> <laughs> and so then, as Jay alluded to, that you just got tired of the cold up north and you decided to come to Baltimore. But really, why did you come to Baltimore? What drove you or what called you to the city? Okay, so Cornell was very much of a design theory school, zero technical training. They figured that you would start working for other architects and pick that up. But So in our fifth year of school, Barbara and I, we were really good friends. And we said, God, I wonder what we're going to do when we graduate. And one of us saw this article in the New York Times, this small article on Mayor Schaefer and the urban home setting program and what they were doing in Baltimore. Where you could get a house for a dollar, renovate it. And obviously he had people like Jay and Bob Embry in place. We didn't know, but some really good people in government. We didn't know this, so, but it sounded intriguing. So on spring break, we drove down to Baltimore and we drove all around knowing nothing. Every neighborhood, up and down Druid Hill and around the park, there was a harbor, wasn't celebrated, but there was water and this amazing urban fabric of row houses and post-industrial buildings of warehouses and, and things. And we just said, it seems like an interesting place. Why don't we, maybe we can actually work on a row house and build it and learn some technical skills. So we just moved here on the work. 
Love that. I know there's a, a number of students in the room as well. And so one of the things that we wanted to chat about a little bit was kind of the, the how did you know? And it's the idea that when you're driving from D.C. to New York at night, you don't have to see the entire path. You just drive as far as your headlights and you keep going until you can make one decision to make the next decision and the next. So was it really just a gut feeling, just a lark? It was just a gut feeling. Uh, you know, and you're young. So if it doesn't work out, you move someplace else. So we actually, as Jay alluded to, we show up, we have, it was a recession, so it was a little hard, but we did find jobs first in the private sector, working for private firms, and then eventually both got jobs in city government. She went to work for Jay, and I went to the Department of Public Works. Both of those entities had in-house design studios. I don't know if that was a Mayor Schaefer thing or whatever, but they were kind of dynamic places to work. You wouldn't think that now. And so we, we started, and at night, we, well, we met, by that point, we had met some other architecture folks who were a little bit older than us, and they were renovating row houses for people because it's the homesteading program. There's lots of work going on. Mm-hmm. And at night, we start helping them out, and two of the people that we meet turn out to be a couple of guys who had graduated from Brown University, and they were roommates, and they came to Baltimore on a lark. And they <laughs> saw the same things that we saw the amazing urban fabric and this feeling that this city was on the verge of some kind of renaissance. And that would be Bill Streeper and Cobber Eccles. <laughs> so we had through this core group of friends and we're all, you know, feeling the good vibes and right. um, long story short, Barberry's Bill. And <laughs> <laughs> Bill and Cobber had been buying row houses and, you know, we're redoing them, fixing them up, and then selling them. And I think Bill was getting a little bored and started to look into bigger projects and was learning about how to finance them. And it was at this point that Barb and I took the leap and said, oh, let's hang out our own shingle. I think maybe we have a client here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And let's start a firm. And we're so young at that point, at least me, I'm not married. I have no kids. I have no mortgage. You know, what's the worst thing that can happen? I go get a real job. Right. So we start, and I don't know if you know this, but our first office was sublet from Brown and Craig. We took that for BCT, Brown, Craig Turner. Anyway, they were so nice. They gave us a little bit of space and they let us share their reception typist because in those days, no computers. You, you had a letter to go out and you would handwrite it and give it to the typist. But anyway, that was our first office. And we just ended up starting to get more and more work. And Bill, some of his earliest projects were Brown's Arcade, it's Mill Center in Hamden. Um, we did some Section 8 housing in Ridgens Delight. And by this point, Barbara and I are getting a little nervous. We can't do all the work ourselves. We feel a little technically we could use some help. And we wanted some more design muscle. So we convinced a couple of more people to come in to be principals. So one of them, David Ben, who uh, was a classmate of ours at Cornell. He was teaching at, at the architecture school at the time. We convinced him to come down and join us. He can also sense a sense of renaissance that Baltimore's going through. Bar Harbor Place had just been built at this point. And long story short there, I ended up marrying Dave. It worked out. <laughs> <laughs> and then we find another partner, George Holbeck, who is amazingly technical, just really knows how to put buildings together. Also very artistic, had an undergraduate degree from MICA, and is also a native Baltimorean. So really knows every single nook and cranny of the landscape and is fascinated with adaptive reuse. So once we had them on board... We really got rolling, and then we could extend our reach 
into working for other developers because it's not really a good idea to have only one client. Right. You know, so it's <laughs> right. I see Wendy Blair out there. She may have been one of the early developers, you know, in this group. I'm just going to name a few. Jay French, I think. Multi-Housy Family Services. I think Homes for America a little bit later. But there were some female developers. Wendy was one. Mm -hmm. Betty Jean Murphy, who was also African-American, and Eleanor Bacon, who became clients. And really, for this girl here who had no women role models to right. see these women developers talk about a man's world and taking some risks and really having tenacity. So, you know, that was really a lot of fun. And so we built the firm up through the 80s with this new group in tow. And then I remember around 1990, Bill Strieber comes up and he says, oh, I found this great warehouse. It used to be a tin decorating plant and it's practically a ruin, but it's on the water, and we got to turn it into Marguerite housing. And I'm thinking, where is there a building like this on the water? I, didn't, I said, so where is this, Bill? And he said, Canton. And I literally said, where is Canton? <laughs> I, it was not, no, but what's Canton? It, you just, it was not on the radar screen back in those days. So just to give you a perspective of how things have changed in Baltimore. I mean, I really did not know where it was. So then we, we did that building over. We did the building next door, Canton Cove over, thanks to Jay saving the road from not coming in. And at that point, we really got to be known for our adaptive reuse, you know, in Baltimore and uh, further out. Yeah, because some of the other projects that I know you worked on also were like Brewers Hill, Quipper Mill. Yeah, yeah. Right and then it just, yeah. Fast forward, Camden Station. We did some Mondamin over, the American Brewery. So a lot of great projects. Yeah, And a lot of people don't know, we have, and we continue to work on this, but we've completed it over 2,000 units of affordable housing by, yeah. in the city, many in some really challenging neighborhoods. These are not glamour projects, but we continue to work on them. It's really important to the mission of this firm. Yeah, absolutely. And so then what got you out of doing some of the work for Bill? Great first client, all that. But as the firm continued to grow, how did you start getting into more of the institutional or non-private developer work? Okay. Good question. So Barbara and I had, and even Dave, pretty early on, we thought, thought we don't want to just do developer work. We want to be there with the big guys. You know, we want to do museums. We want to do schools. We want to do libraries. How in the world are we going to get this work? And once we had a few projects, development work under our belt, we had a couple of very lucky breaks. And both of them had to do with women's schools. The first one is Bryn Mawr School. And when you're in the ins institutional realm, you don't just get a job like you do from a developer on a handshake. You have to compete. You go up against five other architecture firms. You turn in proposals. You get interviewed. And somehow we convinced Bryn Mawr to hire us for this project that they were going for. And they had a dynamic head of school, Barbara Chase, and a forward-thinking board who said, we are a girls' school, we need to have role models for these girls, and we, there's, here's a women-owned firm, let's hire them. And so we did a good job there on the first building, and we ended up staying at Bryn Mawr for about 10 years and doing three more projects there. And during that time, we also got a break at Goucher College, another women's school at that time, for sure. And another dynamic leader, Rhoda Dorsey, was the president. Another dynamic board took a chance on us. And we ended up staying there for around 10 years and did four projects there. So those really helped. And then once you start getting those kinds of projects, then we went on to where we worked at Mercury Universities, including the University of Baltimore. Brian, 
the principal in charge in one of the projects here. We've worked at Morgan, UMBC, you know, many, many of the schools and, and also outside of, of Baltimore. And around 2000 was when I kind of found my niche is when I met Rebecca Hoffberger and I met the gang at the Baltimore School for the Arts and got to work on two incredible projects, the Jim Rouse Visionary Center, the uh, conversion of the Whiskey Barrel Warehouse for AVAM and the renovation, which was big for us at the time, 25 million of the Baltimore School for the Arts, which combined all of my interests, the old buildings, at this point, uh, historic tax credits are in use. So both buildings had the benefit of using those. The art, my thing going back to my childhood and education and the visionary leadership at the school. And of course, Rebecca being such a force. I mean, the whole process of working with these groups and working on these projects was just so great. And that became my niche. And I decided that's really what I wanted to do. And so I parlayed that experience into uh, every new theater for Vinnie Lanchisi and center stage with Kwame Koyama. And then I'm now working at the BMA with Chris Bedford. And so it's been a great ride. And when I, at that time, when I kind of went off and doing cultural work, we have enough diversification in the firm at this point and so the principals are all following their separate passions. And Barbara, who in her heart had always been loving urban design and the public realm, she went back and got a landscape architecture degree. And then she went off to New York to start a landscape architecture firm. I think Baltimore is just too small a pond for her. <laughs> uh, she's very ambitious, very successful. And David liked urban planning, campus planning, libraries, and housing. So he went in that direction. And then there was George, who never gave up his love of adaptive reuse in the old building. The more ruined the building, the better he liked it. He didn't care what the use was. He just wanted to do them over. Yeah. And that's pretty much how we rolled. Yeah. Cho Ben Holdback. Yeah. So that's when it became Cho Ben Holdback after Barb went back up to... Or right. To became, yeah. And then we made George a principal. Yep. Yep. Now let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors. Systems and standard operating procedures. You already know that's how to build a profitable business and how to find the freedom you want. You need systems and procedures. But you struggle with choosing which systems you need most and how to implement those systems quickly so you can get back to doing what you love most. The Designing Your Business Masterclass series was created by acclaimed architect and business consultant Douglas Teeger, FAIA, to help fellow architects and engineers run their firms more profitably while maintaining a healthy work-life balance. Douglas grew from solo practitioner to become managing partner of his 30-plus person firm and then later sold his firm so he can do what he does today, helping architects be more successful at Teeger Consulting. On the third Wednesday of every month, Douglas dives deep into an essential topic that will strengthen the profitability of your firm and make it sustainable for growth in years to come. You can register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass with Douglas Teeger at bqe.com masterclass and start implementing powerful systems for the profitability you need and the freedom you want. Every live masterclass session includes AIA continuing education credit. And when you visit bqe.com masterclass, you'll have access to the full library of past sessions on demand. The Designing Your Business Masterclass is free, and it's brought to you by our friends at BQE, the makers of BQE Core, the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and people. 
for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass at bqe.com slash masterclass. That's bqe.com slash masterclass. And now let's get back to the show. And so I know that Chobin Holbeck has still name, state, and staying power in Baltimore, but it's no longer the name of the firm. So you sold to Quinn Evans a couple of years ago. So talk to us a little bit about how that came about and that decision. Okay, so we were just getting a little bit top-heavy for one thing. We had some amazing people that were in the room, younger principals who had stayed with us for many years, and they needed a place to grow. Uh, we just weren't big enough, I think, to, you know, healthy economically architecture firm is shaped like a pyramid. You know, you've got the mm-hmm. sellers at the top and the doors at the bottom, and we needed to be bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one reason. And another one was... George, David, and I are all the same age, and we'd be retiring at the same time, and it would be quite a burden to have to buy us out. So we talked to the younger principals about perhaps merging or selling, and they were behind it. And so we talked to some management consultants. One of them said, oh, interesting. I'm working with a client, Glenn Evans, who's looking to open a Baltimore office. And it turns out all three principals knew Carl Elefante, who was mm-hmm. one of the principals there. And we started talking, and it took a year, but it, then it all kind of chilled, and they bought it. Yeah. And well, one of the things we liked about Gwen Evans is we shared a lot of same markets. They did a lot of historic preservation. We were a little bit more adaptive reuse, but you know they're very related. Mm-hmm. They did a lot of cultural work, being headquartered in D.C., lots of education, higher ed and K-12 through schools. The one thing they were missing was housing, but that's what we came in. And while the firm is headquartered in D.C., they have four other regional offices, and three of them are in what I'd call sort of second-tier cities, Baltimore, Detroit, and Richmond. And I think there's a synergy of Sandra. With your hand. She's a principal from what, the Detroit office. There's a synergy there between those firms because we share a lot of the same challenges, a lot of the same opportunities. And I think we like working at kind of a community and neighborhood scale rather than trying to make it more of a national scale or something like that. And so that was another appeal of the firm. And Kate, I know you came into the firm. What made you come? I did. So part of it was, um, so I used to uh, co-manage a small architecture firm that I was trying to emulate Chilbin Holbeck. So I was like, oh, well, we're a minority-owned firm that is doing amazing, sustainable, historic preservation. That's exactly what I want to be doing. But an opportunity presented itself to join the Baltimore office. And so it made more sense for me to join the firm as opposed to trying to grow a firm separately. And then I was also like, well, Diane's there, so I get to like work out and hang out with her. So absolutely. <laughs> I think it's so cool that Nikita had her choice, but she chose the Baltimore branch. I mean, Baltimore's kind of amazing. I'm just going to throw that out there. And so now that we're, you know, we're getting towards the end of the program, we still have, we have a little bit of time. So I want to pivot a little bit and talk a little bit about your challenges and opportunities that you've seen and experienced over your career. And so I guess I'll start with the, the elephant in the room. Are you happy you stayed in Baltimore? You know, I am. I think Baltimore Something about the size and the number of challenges it has, you really can make your mark here. I don't know if you feel the same way, Bob, but I, re- I really, I like that aspect of it. And the fact that there have been other people, the clients, that also were able to do amazing things. I mean, where else could you be a Rebecca Hofberger with no money and have this great idea about a 
or my visionary art museum and someone will give you three blue links for three dollars. Right. Or I think Vinnie Lanchisi was every man was working in a bowling alley, you know, have a bigger venue. And so he buy the old town Peter for a dollar and a uh, thirty thousand square foot building and is able to expand every man. And now we have another major creative venue, cultural venue in Baltimore. And so and it makes a difference when these places open. We're not in huge cities, so it makes a big impact when they, they open. So, yeah, yeah. I'm happy as you. <laughs> We're happy and grateful you did as well. <laughs> and so then over the course of your career, uh, you've been a business owner, a wife, a mother, a daughter, a neighbor, a friend. What are your thoughts on work-life balance, and how did you navigate all of the different roles that you've played over your, your life? So I think I was very lucky this sounds like a cliche, but it does take a village to raise a child. I have a great husband, totally willing to share in responsibilities. And being both being firm owners, it was easy to kind of coordinate schedule. Both sets of our parents were nearby, and I had, I could, we could afford, we're very lucky, mm-hmm. um, quality daycare. And so it really worked out for us. I have the perspective of seeing so many um, mothers, well, dads too, come through the firm and try to negotiate this. And what I've learned is don't judge. There's like a million parenting styles. I've seen everything from the helicopter moms to the loosey-goosey laissez-faire mm-hmm. uh, style. <laughs> and by and large, if those kids are loved and supported um, in the long run, they, they really turn out fine and not fuss too much. Yeah, And then, you know, this two years of this working from home, I think has got to have helped a lot of the work just as an option for them. I don't know. Akita, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think the working from home definitely has helped. I know that I know I don't have kids, but I know that there is also the tension between being a stay-at-home mom versus being a working mother or versus being a woman who chooses to stay childless and kind of how that has evolved and shaped careers or not. So I think it's interesting that there, the options have increased as time has yeah, gone on, yeah. which has been... So necessary, particularly in the times of COVID. And so then when you were when you were raising your family, or I guess early motherhood, did you have any of that tension between being concerned about staying or being a stay-at-home mom versus being a working mother versus well, I think every mother, right, moms, when you're at work, you're feeling guilty about the kid. And when you're <laughs> with the kid, you're feeling guilty about work. But here's the interesting thing about working from home, because I'm working with some younger architects that are raising families. And you would, two years ago, if you'd asked me, what do you think about working from home? I would have thought, well, production will definitely go down. Actually, it's the opposite. It, I think it's gone up. What's, because what used to be your nine to five job, it's now 24 seven. I am getting, no, I get emails from my teammates at 10 p.m. I get it on weekends because this is when they are, are working and you know, computers right there, they can just pop on. And I think they're, it's actually increased productions. Strangely, it's kind of weird. and so then anything that you regret all right i do think some uh, (laughs) i wish i had been more patient and kind with a lot of the people that i work with i'm kind of impatient by nature and you know i think gosh i could have been kinder you know said a nicer thing or two i was watching the katanji brown jackson hearings a little bit and her composure. I was like, I need some of that. <laughs> I wish I, you know, because obviously look where she's been and right. she seems to have done it in such a nice way. Yeah. And then, um, do I have any other? Regrets, not that I can. Okay. 
Do you think that any of the the needing to or feeling like you wanted to be nice was had anything to do with being a woman business owner or having to make space for women at the table since there weren't that many in the industry? It's an interesting thought. Maybe I could use that as an excuse. That's why I'm, <laughs> I had to be really aggressive when I was younger. Uh, a little bit to do with it, but still, I saw her. Yeah, she was class employees. Pretty good. So yeah, I think fair. it's doable. I think you can be powerful and be nice. Okay. I, love it. I like it. All right. So any tips for emerging professionals? Well, I would tell a lot of the younger architects in the office to get out from behind the computer get into the field, get on site, learn how buildings are put together, get out in your community, especially if you have particular interests, get out and see how the world works and make as many relationships as you can. Because I think if you just stay in your little architecture bubble, it's not a great thing. I volunteered, Doreen Bolger, who used to be the head of the BMA, asked me to volunteer on her building and grounds committee at the Baltimore Museum. And so I did that for a while. And then they liked me there, and so they asked me to be a trustee. So I served as a trustee there, and I'd done a stint as a trustee at Everyman, and I'm now currently on the board of MICA. And it gives you this perspective of how the clients think. Because if you think they're talking about architecture and what a wonderful world, that is not what they are talking <laughs> about. They have real issues, real challenges, mm-hmm. and it's really good to hear what those are and to be involved with those so that when you do work on those types of projects, you're just a better architect. I just think I see too many of the young ones mm-hmm. just sitting behind a three-year-old. Right. <laughs> Waiting for permission to go and be great or volunteer or get out there. Yeah. 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 Right. That makes sense. And so then it's been such an honor to be able to sit here and talk with you and learn from you. And I'm so grateful to you to share your story with all of us. And so as we're wrapping up, I'd love to know what challenges and opportunities do you foresee ahead for the profession? I think that the biggest challenge right now is climate change. It used to be something that we used to think was in the future, but it's here. And this is such an important role and that architects can play. You know, now we have more climate because it's a really big issue. And the younger the people that come into the office, the more anxious they feel about it. And I've recently come to learn that 40% of carbon emissions are from building. You know, it's not just energy consumption, but the, the manufacturing of the material, et cetera. So I think it's a, a great, it's a great, it's a huge challenge, but it's a great role for architects to play. Yeah, I agree. Particularly because building reuse is climate action. It's one and the same. So I guess with that, we're going to go ahead and end it there on a positive note with climate change and the fact that we have some work to do. We're going to go with that. <laughs> thank you all. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> A big thank you to BQE, the makers of BQE Core, for their support of this podcast episode. Visit bqe.com masterclass to register for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass. This week's episode was produced by Fernando Queiroz. Thank you so much for listening. Links to amazing resources can be found in the episode's show notes. Special thanks to Sarah Gilberg for allowing me to use snippets of her song Fireflies from her debut album, Other People's Secrets, which, by the way, is available wherever music is sold. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the show. And now that Tangible Remnants is part of the Gable Media Network, you can listen and subscribe to all network partner content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Until next time. 
Remember that historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling our inclusive history. I saw the first fireflies of summer And right then I thought of you Oh, I could see us catching them And setting them free Honey, that's what you do That's what you do to me I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that, (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.